You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. So what happens is that this focus on the ideological sphere begins to periodic slowly over time, and this is what Gramsci is referring to as war of positions, <coughs> Norway change the balance in the judiciary, in the legislature, in the bureaucracy, in the police, so that by the end of the colonial rule, the pillars of the empire has already collapsed before the government has gone. So Jetta's work demonstrates that very well. As she she mentioned in one of her talks earlier, that the police would often ring up the revolutionaries and tell them that we are coming to attack, uh, rescue, so run away. So this this had occurred because of this huge ideological intervention that was made. The focus on the ideological is what is missing in the resistance that we visit, that we uh, face today. Hmm? Uh, whereas the movements which are threats to democracy have retained their focus on the ideological. Those who are opposing these movements somehow have chosen alternate paths. I'll come to that in a, in a moment. In India, for example, the fascist forces that are represented by majoritarian what we call communalism, uh, the Hindu nationalist, as, uh, as is wrongly called, because it cannot be nationalist if you are separatist, we call them separatists. Hmm? For 50 years, even after independence, almost from the 1950s, they set up schools, and now there are thousands and thousands and thousands of RSS schools, this is the organization, hmm? where millions of children go, where in the schools, in the text, to tender eight, nine years old, it is taught that wherever Islam goes, rivers of blood flow. They destroy temples, they burn libraries, they in, insult mothers and sisters. So, so a child grows up to believe that once he's grown up, he would do a great nationalist activity if he actually kills a Muslim. Now, this is happening on a massive scale with no effort, virtually, to combat it at the ideological level. Uh, here I think a serious issue is at stake. Are we to frontally take on the fascist, divisive, often going in the name of nationalism, but almost always they are communitarian and divisive of a larger territorial uh, identity? It's very strange that they, they call themselves nationalists, but almost always divide the territorial identity. So they are not nationalists. As I said earlier also, in our, in our, during the course of our 100-year-old struggle, they were never called nationalists. They were always called either separatists or communalists. Hmm? Now, there is, an, there, there is no desire, it seems, to take it on ideologically, frontally. For example, if you take the most recent example, I was discussing this with Stephanie, uh, with Trump taking on you know, these four women uh, the, uh, and asking them to leave the country, etc., etc., there is an, uh, one, I'm going to the newspaper reports, an African-American pastor who says the solution is do not focus on the racial question, do not focus on the immigration question, hmm? focus on the economy, focus on other issues. Hmm? Now this is identical to what we are witnessing in India. 
I, I attended a meeting of about 30, about 40 intellectuals, activists, TV anchors, all very anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian, journalists, academics, etc., etc. And apart from just two or three of us, overwhelming majority said that we should not fight Modi, who is leading this fascist movement. We should not take him on on the question of Hindu-Muslim. We should not bring the issue of religious division. The basis on which he is building his entire movement, on which he is mobilizing the people, you don't want to do that. Let's, they said, let us focus on the economic distress. Let us focus on the peasantry's condition, on the working class this thing. Let us focus on his economic policy, globally, globally, but not take on ideologically what is the art of the fascist agenda. Now, this is something to worry about. Thirdly, the need to engage in the, and this is what I learned from this workshop, engage more creatively in the cultural, psychological, emotional sphere. The notion that we, if we have the right rational, reasoned answer, people will buy it, obviously has not worked. So many people have said, how is it that when we, when we tell them the obvious reason, nobody is listening to us. Why is nobody listening to us? We need to think about that. In trying to think about that, I have a couple of suggestions. We must recognize that nationalism is a powerful emotion. Let us not make it a dirty word, which is how I find it being used amongst us. Oh, this is nationalist. It is one kind of misuse of nationalism, which is the dirty word. Nationalism is, in other words, not to be handed over to the fascists, to the separatists. Nationalism with an alternate understanding, which is humane, which is inclusive, which is uh, liberating, needs to be brought forward and people need to be mobilized on that, as they have been in the past. Even the left, in many areas, grew on the basis of nationalism. You could not have had the Chinese Revolution or the Vietnamese Revolution, and I can add a long list to it, without nationalism being at the center. So nationalism is not equal to fascism. So it is a wrong reading of 19th century Europe that nationalism is bourgeois, nationalism is fascist. It is not, it need not be. And I gave you the example that nationalism in the in the anti-colonial nationalism was exactly the opposite. It was, uh, it was liberating. Similarly, I, I would su suggest that we do not hand over religion. Another powerful emotive uh, area over to the right. This, there's a tendency to, again, among the left and among many rationalists, to fight religion itself rather than the political misuse of religion. Now this is this is really throwing the baby with the bathwater. Religion, as we all know, has historically played completely opposite roles. I mean, it has led to millions of women being murdered in the name of witch hunting. On the other hand, religion has also been a vehicle of social emancipation. And Buddhism, for example, emerges as a religion. So does Islam, as partly as an egalitarian move against what is happening in society. And of course, there are the Bishop Tutus and the Martin Luther Kings and so many others, like that the, the entire liberation theology. Now, here is religion being used for another purpose. 
Gandhi was deeply religious and he was seen as the biggest threat by the Hindu fanatics. Because he was a believer, he was the he, he was deeply religious, so you couldn't say that this is a move from anti-religion coming on to us. Hmm? So, so we need, we, there is a tendency to, for us, amongst us, to uh, either look away or put this whole religion, nationalism basket in, 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 in the hands of those who should be kept away from it uh, very meticulously. To stick to the time, I'll just make one more point and we can take this up in discussion. The issue of reparation or retribution has also come up. Okay? I think we can draw from our experience. We had, a, we had one of the worst cases in world history of oppression, 200 years of colonial rule, the largest economy in the world being reduced to a state that even today, 70 years after independence, we had more than 300 million people who are so poor that I'm embarrassed. I thought we were going around Bosnia and looking at a backward part of Europe, mm -hmm. and this looks advanced to me, <laughs> you know? So, we were brought to mud and filth, as uh, the Nobel laureate uh, Tagore in his uh, writing said that when the British leave, what a, what a terrible <coughs> mess of mud and filth they will leave behind. Now, what is to be done? Is the idea to create take revenge, retribution? Now, what the national movement did, as I said, for the struggle against a very, very, very oppressive system, violent, oppressive in every conceivable way, it erased our history, our cultural, our uh, emotional, whatever. I mean, we as a people ceased to exist for a few, for 200 years. And the movement from the beginning consciously said that this is not a move movement against the whites, it is not a movement against Christianity, it is not a movement against the British. After independence, in fact, when Britishers would come to India, they were shocked that nobody was you know, attacking them, nobody was saying anything to them. There is no anti-Britishness, anti-Americanness in India. Because the movement said we are against colonialism, not the people. So inbuilt in it is non-violence and reconciliation. That was, again, majorly Gandhiji's contribution. That you, you oppose, but you oppose on, on issues, not oppose on the basis of identity. And that is, that is uh, and th this is something that I, I think we need to remember today, because, again, going by yesterday's experience, if, if all the memorializing of uh, the, the terrible things that have happened, if all it produces a sense of violence and revenge, then we have failed in our task completely. If it cannot generate in us the best values of humanity, if, it, if we cannot find ways of saying that what should not happen is violence based on identity and ethnicity, hmm? <laughs> not that those who were wrong should now have their turn, in the world will be an impossible place to live in, beginning with the United States of America. Imagine the, the, the Native Americans taking revenge on the whole of the United States because of the violence that was done to them. Hmm? But, you know, it sounds silly when I say it about the US, but that is exactly what is happening in India, that is exactly what is happening in large parts of the world. Hmm? The, the, the ones who, who feel aggrieved now want to take revenge on the, the others. So I think 
uh, these very briefly are the five or six uh, points which I thought we need to ponder about when we are trying to work out a strategy as intellectuals, as activists, uh, on how to meet with this terrible challenge that we are facing globally. Thank you. I would like to begin by saluting the dialogue that is CHCI now, Crisis of Democracy, Summer School stimulates with the inclusion of arts and cultures, and especially of the moving images, in a debate that most of the times happens in the realm of the social sciences or of institutional politics. Also, this seminar suggests connections between what feels like along the verge black backlash under the situation in Brazil and other cases in the world with similarities and differences. I take the opportunity here to go further into this case. So I presented part of this paper relating to one film in Dublin, then I showed you a second film, and then I hope to give more background on the Brazilian situation here and to help us make connections. Uh, we had the chance here to debate films coming from Serbia and Bosnia, including the material of Srebrenica, genocidal memorial, clippings of political campaigns in Turkey, Hungary, the US, television series in India, and others. And they all suggest the many ways in which the moving images are implicated in the production and in the shaping of public debates. Official propaganda, sensational media, corporate cartoon, public art, film, television, video games, social media. How do images circulate ideas and debates across different media? What kinds of interlocutions happen through the mediation of images? Note that images are relational. They mediate across time and space. They mobilize memory and shared cultural repertoires. They provoke debate. They are in movement. How are cinema and other audiovisual forms implicated in the crisis of democracy? What can the moving images do to face state violence and violence coming from transnational criminal organizations? I go into the so-called favela situation film in order to suggest the ways in which film triggers public debate, even though it not always succeeds in changing public agendas, especially with reference to discrimination. Um, so I will go into the Brazilian case. Between 19... Thank you. 
Between 1964 and 1984, there was a military dictatorship. In 1988, there was a new constitution written by uh, representatives who were elected specially for that, and it's a very democratic uh, constitution that has guaranteed 30 years of consistent um, investment in education and health. In 1989, we had the first uh, direct elections for presidency. Um, the Constitution, um, some of the things it guarantees, it's very long and intricate. It's opposite to the US model, and it has been very criticized because of that. But um, nowadays, looking backwards, you can realize that because it's so long and intricate, it demanded negotiation and it was flexible to, up to now, guarantee many uh, democratic uh, advances and, and inclusion. Here's a, a very short uh, political abstract <laughs> or synopsis. And you can see that we had three impeached president, presidents during this time. First, a very rightist one. Um, we had, I'm sorry, we had two impeached and we had three vice presidents in power. Um, so vice presidency is very important there. The last 30 to 50 years, we have consistent improvement. Um, and that's why it's so surprising. And I think it's not so only surprising for us in Brazil, but it's also surprising uh, in the world, because Brazil was seen as a case against the wave, uh, whereas inequalities were increasing everywhere. Inequality was decreasing in Brazil. Um, so that's a. I'm trying to. I was trying to bring some film material to suggest why this happened. Um, I just wanted you to. This is a re book reference for those who are interested in um, data, like empirical data in education and politics and health. And this is a very book very good book that brings this um, consolidation of the, this expansion of democracy in social terms. Sorry about this. So the favela situation films, I think that can bring some light to the to another side of this uh, of this uh, uh, history, which is um, the increase in violence in periphery neighborhoods. So, in the one hand, you have an expansion of citizenship in terms of education and health, and but on the other hand, you have like split citizenship between those who live in periphery neighborhoods where traffic dealers install themselves at the same time as uh, democracy started. So dictatorship ended and dealers entered. And the security forces, the police and the army, 
they have not been democratized. And uh, nobody, no, neither the left or the right, or no one actually addresses the question of violence. So film did it for a while, but it's so controversial. So it's a case where trauma is not talked about. It's, it's not legitimate to bring up trauma. But there is, so there is a filmic debate on that. Although the word trauma is not used, there's a filmic debate. And um, it's very interesting how aesthetics is important here. So we're talking about like emergent voices that came out of this uh, democratization. So for the first time in Brazilian history, you have filmmakers coming from the periphery. And they, these filmmakers are problematizing how to talk about violence. And they're doing so in a reaction against uh, the films that started, that kind of triggered this debate. And I, I'm going to show um, a very short slice, one minute, um, that helps to situate this. From a film um, made by a very good documentarist who's among the wealthier families in the country. So it's a bit opposite pole, but he's very sensitive. And he's exactly uh, bringing up with surprise the lack of democracy in the periphery. So I'm just going to show. Na primeira terça-feira de cada mês, um camburão escoltado por três carros da Polícia Civil deixa a Avenida Suburbana do Rio de Janeiro, serve da Delegacia de Repressão Entorpecente e vem para este ferro velho no Caju. O comboio transporta toda a droga apreendida durante o último mês, uma quantidade que pode variar de 200 quilos a 3 ou 4 toneladas. Em menos de duas horas, Tudo será incinerado no forno de alta temperatura. A expansão do tráfico de drogas a partir da metade da década de 80 é diretamente responsável pelo crescimento vertiginoso do número de homicídios. Uma pessoa morre a cada meia hora no Rio, 90% delas atingidas por bala de grosso calibre. A Polícia Federal estima que hoje o comércio de drogas emprega 100 mil pessoas no Rio, ou seja, o mesmo número de funcionários da Prefeitura da cidade. Nem todas essas pessoas moram em quadernos. No entanto, a repressão se concentra exclusivamente nos bolos cariocas. Esse programa, rodado ao longo de 97 e 98, ouviu as pessoas mais diretamente envolvidas nesse conflito. O policial, o traficante e, no meio do fogo cruzado, o morador. So he goes on after this 
voiceover introduction. He goes on to interview dealers, and he actually does that. They are masked, but they give their, their own perspective on the lack of support and lack of perspective and why they're doing that. The police, he manages to interview policemen who are against police violence. So the police uh, agents denounce violence. And he, he also interviews people who live in the, in the place. Um, right two years afterwards, City of God, I was talking with Rebecca yesterday. I was going to show you, but I don't think we have time for that. If we have in the uh, afterwards, uh, the three minutes and a half introduction to City of God, which is a performed version of this introduction of the documentary, just to see how ideas flow through images and they transform themselves, but they in the language of images. Um, so, and in this case. Uh, this debate, starting from this uh, kind of distant per perspective, triggered insider perspectives, and the insider perspectives are some of the ones I showed you. Uh, they bring traumatic cause cases up, and due to the lack of documentation, they invent the document. They create docu documentation and they do so in very creative ways, like in the film um, White Out Black In, which is about a very racy case. Um, they use science fiction in order to perform what happened and to ask for revenge. So um, they are, they are looking for empowered ways to use image. Um, and, in our, and when doing so, they move away from the documentary form because they want to move away from the position of the powerless victim. And that's what's interesting in this debate. It's a debate about who speaks what about whom and how. And the how, and when we're talking about how, we're talking about aesthetics. And it's very interesting to find aesthetic debate in periphery um, film. Um, so how much time I do I have? Five minutes. OK, so let's rock out. So, um, Violence related to social inequalities is present in films of the Cinema Novo and in Glauber Rocha's Aesthetica, um, the, the Aesthetics of Hungary. It portrays violence in allegorical mode, which does not represent an endemic situation and is not expressed in the documentary mode. The Brazilian cinema of the early 2000s restarted the debate by making space for graphic violence in a documentary mode. This cinema made history in the world cinema, introducing a new category, that of the favela situation, that during some years became virtually mandatory in festivals. 
festivals. The positive international reaction contrasted with protests in the city of, of God, in the academy and in the newspapers, as well as among Brazilian critics. In 2019, to look at the succession of titles that two, 20 years ago provoked a film debate about how to film bar the barbarism which settled in certain territories at the same time that these territories benefited from urban services like water, light, asphalt, housing, and even in a few cases, sewages, help us to realize what the, that the situation of exception in these territories threatens democracy, and it's like red smell poisoning the atmosphere. Um, In the wake uh, of post-structuralist elaborations on what archives reveal about the organization of knowledge and about the relations between the knowledges and the powers they document, archival films have a strength of their own. The work of German filmmaker Harun Faraki with different kinds of documentary images has inspired insightful interpretation of the cinematic potential of re-elaboration of the archival image. Who Killed Eloa, a Brazilian film based on archival images from broadcast television on a local case of female homicide, suggests that the ways in which archival documentary might contribute to raise awareness about discriminatory newscast conventions. The lack of archival images has also inspired insightful interpretations. Hitipon, especially in L'Image Moncont, has elaborated on the problem of enacting his own memories when the documents that could attest for the state violence he testified were destroyed or did not exist. Like Ajibley Queiroz, the filmmaker, uh, we, we saw his film the other day, this Cambodian survivor from the Khmer Rouge dramatized violence, but he used clay, clay figurines with his own testimony voiceover. Adelaide Queiroz works with live action and with his friends' performance of their own stories. It's a kind of a very collective way of filming. They do it and uh, they work together. Like Richie Pong, he used fantasy and imagination to compensate for the lack of documentation. Um, Anne Kaplan uh, relies on testimony she finds in the streets of New York City in the, in the aftermath of the 9-11 events to counteract what she feels is homogenizing sensational legal treatment of tra trauma a treatment that contributes to reinforce and disseminate traumatic experience. The films of Adrilei Queiroz can be thought of in, in the conjunction of archive testimony and performance. They flirt with autofiction in their attempt to go beyond the homogeneous. Um, treatment of popular communities. Uh, there are other filmmakers in Brazil who could be, who I could be talking about, and I recommend a very short essay uh, that you have on your um, file, which is by a Brazilian black woman, 
and it's a short essay collectively made and uh, not narrative, uh, but very interesting. So the, the issue of how to contribute to disarticulate violence, trauma, and discrimination is at the core of contemporary filmmaking and documentary studies. This is not only a matter of what to film, but also a matter of how to film it's both a political and aesthetic problem. I hope I uh, help to understand how the Brazilian case fits here. Thank you, Mary. Uh, I'll try and stick to 20 minutes. Uh, and uh, there are these two, two poems, actually, from two of our uh, very major poets who have written about uh, the nation and freedom and so on and so forth. So I let them play in the background. I'm not going to comment about them, but I just thought that they would give a certain kind of perspective to what I'm trying to say today. Okay. So we've been talking about the crisis of democracy here and trying to figure out uh, ways of resisting authoritarianism, creeping uh, in some cases, in other cases more obvious. And I would like to therefore take you back to a moment in the history of India where writers, artists, intellectuals came together to form a cultural front to fight against colonialism and imperialism in the pre-1947 period and then engaged the issues of social, political, cultural, uh, cultural transformation in the period after independence. These were writer activists who were self-consciously engaged in public debates and did not consider art within what later became the confines of pure aestheticism. So the organization that work I'm referring to is actually the Indian Progressive Writers Association for the brainchild of students who were actually in London, and two major figures, one of the members were, one was called Lutra Janan, and the other was called Sajjad Zaheer. And they were actually very, uh, they were drawn to the anti-fascist beliefs and the cultural fronts against fascism in the mid-30s. And uh, they were aware of, obviously, the rise of fascism, imperial conquest, colonial exploitation in Asia, Africa, and Latin American countries. Their outlook was very broad. They had read translations of practically all the Russian and European writers, uh, including Gorky, Tolstoy, Marx, Freud, that. So they decided that something needed to be done uh, in India, and they come back with these ideas, and they, they get together and they form what is called the Indian Progressive Writers Association. Now, like the Indian National Congress, which was spearheading the anti-colonial movement, the IPWA consisted of writers and intellectuals who belonged to different political persuasions. Nationalists, socialists, communists, all broadly progressive and left-oriented. They were all opposed to colonial rule and forward to Indian independence. They also realized, like most intellectuals of their time, the mid period particularly, 
that political independence had to be accompanied by social, cultural, and economic transformation. In their writings and speeches, there are constant references to feudal values, exploitation of the poor, women, and women power. With independence and establishment of the nation state, the adoption of parliamentary democracy, it was the shape and contours of the new nation that became a contested terrain. Social and economic backwardness and partition created new challenges, including the danger of organization. In its heyday, the IPWA and the IPTA, IPTA, which is an acronym for the Indian People's Theatre Association, uh, which Aditya was referring to, uh, uh, they took upon it, uh, themselves the task of foregrounding the inequalities of class, gender, and caste. Now, the relationship of this organization with the state was not a linear oppositional one, given that the latter, that the state, did have a socialist orientation. In fact, some, some of the progressive writers and one of the very famous uh, uh, sort of uh, member of this organization, a man called Khaja Ahmed Abbas, who later became very famous because he made lots of very successful films, so he's a film writer, script writer. They were inclined towards even the possibility of a state-mandated transformation. The clearer and directer, direct opposition came from radical left-wing ideologues in its ranks who characterized the state as a bourgeois democratic one. Increasingly, it was the more orthodox radical elements in the IPWA that eventually led to its waning as many artists and writers began to feel constrained and notable amongst them was the person I want to talk about today, a man called Saadat Hassan Mantu. Now, uh, since, since I have limited time, I don't want to go into this, but I do, I, I do want to suggest to you that the IPWA represented a spectrum of responses to the Indian nation state. Uh, from, at one end, it could be almost a collaborative effort. At the other end, it could be a completely oppositional effort. And all kinds of people came within this broad rubric of the Indian Progressive uh, Association. Uh, why do I choose Mandu? Uh, Mandu is, uh, is the quintessential writer of his age. He's a voice that defies categorization precisely because of his critical engagement with himself and his age in ways that unsettle everyone. The state, his contemporaries, uh, his contemporary writers within the organization, outside the organization, right wing, left wing, whatever you have. Uh, if the IPWA represents a spectrum of responses to the new nation, Mando falls both within and outside that spectrum. So he can stand outside it and he can stand within it, and, and he makes everybody feel very, very uncomfortable. So this is the example of this writer. Uh, I, may, I, I would also like to point out that in most post-colonial studies, most departments of post-colonial studies, which are basically English departments that take on these issues across the world, uh, post-colonial uh, writers or post-colonial texts are largely from uh, within the metropolitan here we have a whole lot of so-called post-colonial writers who are actually never even, they never even regarded. And Mantra is one of them. So Mantra was born in Ludhiana, Punjab in 1912, and he died in Lahore, Pakistan in 1955 at the age of 42. Due to cirrhosis of the liver. Well, you know, he took the alcohol and he was, he 
he loved his drink most, most of his life, but when he went to Pakistan, he became particularly fond of alcohol. That's how he died. He was ethnically a Kashmiri. He came from a middle class family. His father was a judge. So we are not talking about people who are coming from, from, from very poor or disadvantaged sections. He wrote 22 collections of short stories, roughly about 240, in Urdu, the language which I'll have so I need to talk about a little bit later. He wrote radio plays, essays, sketches. He also wrote scripts for some very successful films in Bombay, as it was then called today Mumbai, by the right wing. The right wing has changed names. Sayyid was talking about this this morning. He was tried for obscenity six times. Uh, thrice under colonial rule, and thrice in Pakistan after he migrated there. <coughs> So let me begin with a quotation that has been lost in the post-colonial adulation accorded to him more recently. In an essay to my readers, he wonders about the new kind of dispensation that will emerge after the end of colonial rule. And I quote, what would be the difference between an alien government and one of our own? Will ideas and emotions be allowed to develop along the right lines? What sort of relationship would there be between the state and the individual and between the state and civil society? There was a need to ponder over these questions. We should not have let foreign recipes provide us with definitive answers. So I thought that I would take up some of the stories, but then later I decided that I would actually not take up the stories uh, in greater detail. I will take up actually two or three, uh, there are three essays which I'll be referring to, and there'll be two letters. Uh, you know, you know, letters are very interesting examples of what he manages to do in terms of that space of existence. So two major issues that he takes up constantly in his essays, the charter of obscenity, of course, and progressive literature, and the diktats of the Indian communists. Of course, both of these are connected. The brickbats that he received for his stories provoked him to write irreverent pieces ridiculing the understanding of his critics. He was a lone rebel, he actually quoted controversy, he was more from terrible of the literature. Uh, in one piece uh, called To My Readers, you know, he was a very self-reflexive kind of writer. There's an essay which is called Manto on Manto, where he said, I'm his also gangler. You know, nobody knows Manto. I know him, so I'll tell you all, all about him. Uh, this is an essay called To My Readers. He uh, recalls his anger at the diktats of the communists. He says, I was, I was very angry at the manifesto they issued every day. Uh, you know, coming out from Russia's Kremlin to Bombay's Cape Cod to Metroid Road, Lahore. Why did these people not talk about the land on which they lived and breathed? Had these stopped producing intellectuals, their sterility could now only be cured through red irradiation. He makes fun of the so-called educated people who have debated at length about his literary work. Uh, he says it has been declared as obscenity and proletarian, both together. So he refuses to turn down his writing because uh, it made people feel uncomfortable and did not allegedly contribute to some kind of nebulous hope in a better future. Some of his contemporaries felt that his work was too prehistoric. This is true of the communists. You know, they said, see, discouraged people, you know, you don't have to talk about things which are so dark and so bleak. Feel some, something which, is, which makes them feel hopeful. And this is what he says to them. For those who wish to put an end to vulgar literature and whatever else it may be, they would be better advised to end the conditions that spawn such literature in the first place. If you cannot tolerate my stories, 
it means the world is intolerable. And how can I strip the blouse of, society, of civility and society when we are naked to begin with? Only I don't make it wear clothes. And that's because it's not my work, but the tailor's. People call me a wielder of a black pen, but my problem is that I don't write on a black slate with a black pen. I use a white chalk to make the blackness of the board even more prominent. He was he was either he was pigeonholed by all kinds of people. Even Maris wanted to call him progressive at one point. He became a reactionary at another point. The government attacked him and said, Oh, you are a progressive. Pakistan was called a progressive, which meant that he was a red. And therefore he was attacked. And then the government said, Well, maybe he's actually quite a good guy. You know, he would do well to be projected as a great Pakistani writer. He says, I don't understand. There was a time when I was considered progressive, then declared a reaction. Once again, those who had earlier passed the judgment now appear willing to call me progressive. And her government, and by, by the government he means the state of government of Pakistan, because we have migrated there, he says they see me as a progressive, in other words, a red communist. Sometimes out of exasperation, it calls me a pornographer and files a suit against me. The same government then puts out advertisements declaring Mantra to be a great writer of this country, a great short story writer. His real fear, and he expresses it in his writing, was what would happen if he was given state recognition and valorized after and he says, you know, I tremble if the government was to place a medal on my coffin because my soul would wander around restlessly forever. In 2005, on the 50th anniversary of his death, a commemorative stamp was brought out by the government of Pakistan. And in 2012, he was awarded posthumously the Nishane Mutiaz, which is one of the highest civilian awards. He wrote nine letters between, I'm coming to the main Letters which I want to discuss. He wrote nine letters between 1951 and 1954. All these nine letters were addressed to Uncle Sam. And, and there's a small history around these letters. Uh, the USIS in 1951 decided to set up shop in Pakistan because they said that we must sort of you know, influence opinion, public opinion. And one day, Mantra found that one member from Mr. Smith from the American from the USIS, accompanied by a local uh, person, came and said, Mr. Mantra, we hear you're a great writer. We would like you to write for us. So Mantra said, well, you know, I write in Urdu. I don't write in English. And they said, no, that's no problem. You can bring it out in Urdu. You brought out an Urdu edition of our whatever we're bringing out. And Mantra said, well, you know, and how much would you like? How much would, how much would you like for each story? And Mantra thought about it. Thought about it and he said, Well, you know, these guys are very rich, let me ask for a fancy amount. He said, I will take 200 rupees. And Mr. Smith says, 200? Excuse me, why don't you take 500? <laughs> and he said, I thought about it and I said, No, no, look, I have said 200, so I'll stick to it. So, he's, so then they reached a compromise anyway. So, so the, the story goes that then the next day he turns up with this letter to him. And the, and the staff there don't know what to do with this letter because he's addressed with it to Uncle Sam. And he says, This is my story. I'll come to this in a moment. The second letter I wanted to take up is a letter which he writes to Pandit Nehru, the Prime Minister of India. He has now gone to Pakistan in 1948. He's very unhappy. He's, he, he has no source of livelihood now. 
his family is there, he's suffering, there are these obscenity charges against him, the state of Pakistan has drawn him to court, he's fighting those charges. So it is in this context that he writes to Panditji. Panditji, of course, is a title I, 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 I don't know. I mean, a pundit is a person who's very educated, who's very thoughtful. It's a title, but uh, and and Nehru was called Panditji, Panditji Award. He says, Panditji, Assalamu Alaikum. He begins with a religious greeting, even though he was never a believer himself, and Nehru was not really known for his religiosity. Why does he do it? He's having a laugh at having become a Muslim on account of being a Pakistani. Assalamu Alaikum. This man. Who had nothing to do with it, who laughed at, uh, who laughed at. How does he, so, so now, now Grunthal does not consider the Indian PM an enemy or a stranger. He actually assumes that the Indian Prime Minister is answerable to him. 